That, uh, that literally was an hour-long conversation with a cameraman working all around us. At, and at the very end, Diana says, is this going to be a church on screen? No, we just like to do these kind of things. Um, so I'm the blah, blah, blah. And just a, a reminder, uh, the, uh, the first hurdle is to be able to purchase the land. And as I said, we're about halfway to our goal for the purchase price. Uh, the good news is we did get an extension on our, uh, on our closing or on our waiving the financing contingency. It was the 9th of November. It's now the 23rd of November. Our, our, the uh, seller very graciously agreed to that. So I uh, would just ask everybody to, uh, to prayerfully consider how to participate in, uh, in this obvious next step of, of Green Tree and uh, sinking our roots more deeply down into our community. Uh, we're continuing this morning in our series on questions that are asked Jesus. Yesterday, I'm working on my sermon, kind of finishing things up. Gets to be about lunchtime, and I decide I'm going to run over to Schnucks. I like their salad bar, and they have a pretty good soup bar. And so I grab my salad and my soup, and I'm walking, and I think, I want to get some iced tea. I kind of have a, have a hankering for an iced tea. Now, before yesterday, I couldn't have told you the name of this tea. I just knew it was the tall green uh, can of green tea. And I ran by, and it was great because it's 99 cents, but yesterday it was on sale for 89 cents. So I saved a dime. So I'm back at the office, and I'm eating my lunch, and I'm drinking my tea. And I just happened to be holding it at an angle where I noticed the label a little bit more than I ever have before. And this is called Peace uh, Tea. Maybe some of you have heard of Peace Tea. I didn't even know that was the name. There's a person in the front holding up the peace sign. And then there's this crowd of people over to the side, and they look like they're in some kind of march of some kind. And there are a couple of them that are holding up signs. And one of the signs says, question authority. And the other one says, be your own master. And I'm looking at this going, I thought it would say something like, quench your thirst, or have a hankering for tea, drink our tea. I wasn't quite sure the whole question authority, be your own master, but I heard those kind of terms and, and kind of have an idea of where that's going. So my natural curiosity takes me to the Peace Tea website, which you can go and visit if you would like. And I started reading what we believe. And so here is what we believe about peace and tea. Peace simple is not something to be messed with. It is not to be exploited or trivialized. The peace symbol is the very inspiration behind the creation of peace tea. Peace tea was born out of a yearning for a higher calling. It is all about one single and perfect fundamental truth to evoke an emotion or perhaps even more importantly, an action. Peace tea is whatever you want it to be. Peace tea is based in the true meaning of peace. Peace is a balance of a deep understanding in yourself and between others where a mutual respect results by accepting differences, displaying tolerance, displaying tolerance, erasing tensions, and allowing each and every person to have a voice, an opinion, a right to be who and what they want to be. I thought I was just thirsty. I didn't realize that I, there was so much in this can. What really caught my attention was the fact that peace tea can be whatever I want it to be. So I called our bank yesterday because what I want peace tea to be is $900,000 so I don't have to go out and talk to people about money anymore and I can get on with life. I don't think they're going to return my phone call or if they do, they might call the elders and say, you might want to check on your pastor. We think he's getting a little bit loose in the curve. But let me tell you something shouldn't say it that way. That sounds condescending. Let me suggest 
that if there's one question that defines the 21st century Western culture, it's the question, what is truth? What is peace to you? Well, it might not be what peace is to me, and it might not, what's peace to me might not be what peace is to you. We live in a day and an age where our culture is most clearly defined in the idea that truth is relative. In the, in, the, in the belief system that looks at the world and says there is no absolute truth, there is no foundational truth, man creates, woman creates their own truth, and what your truth is today might not be what your truth is tomorrow, and what your truth is is, is completely irrelevant to how I define truth. You don't have to look very far at all to understand that that is a primary value system that is held by our culture. Now take with that the notion of the Christian community, people who are disciples of Jesus, and if you're here this morning visiting and you're exploring what it might mean to be a follower of Christ, one of the things we firmly believe in is that the Lord has called us to go and share this message with others. That Jesus said, I want you to make more disciples. I want you to tell others about me. And so we have committed ourselves as individuals as well as a congregation to offering what we call the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And, and many of people sitting in this room not only are saved by Jesus, but are ambassadors for him, are messengers for him. But a lot of us do that messaging, a lot of us do that sharing, and we may be ignoring the other half of the equation, which is this idea that there is no truth. And if you take the, the concept of this question, what is truth, and you ignore it in the context of our day and age in sharing the gospel, I would suggest that we will become irrelevant, that our message will be just discarded out of hand because there can't possibly be any ultimate truth. So if we're not going to be irrelevant, if we're going to actually have an impact on the culture in which we live, if we actually believe that the, the power of God is for salvation, for all who believe, and that that is part of our calling, whether you're a paid staff person or an elder or you're, you're a person that is simply a member of the church, that each and every one of us has a calling to share this, this message with others, how should, how can disciples meet that challenge? How do we put the message without watering it down, without changing it to be something that it was never intended to be, how can we be relevant in this day and age? The good news is, this is not the first time the questions come up. This is not the the first time that someone has suggested that perhaps this is all relative and you can make it up as you go along. In fact, Scripture, if you just did a word study on the word truth in the Bible, you'd spend a lot of time seeing what Scripture has to say about truth. The passage we're going to look at today This is the question that's put to Jesus. What is truth? So we're going to be looking at John chapter 18. I'm going to start in verse 28, but I'm reading verses 28 to verse 32 simply to give you the context, simply to give you the setting in which this conversation takes place. We're going to be spending our time with the conversation between Jesus and a man called Pilate. Hear the word of God. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. They being the the religious leaders of, of Jesus' day. They've had Jesus arrested. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. 
Then the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Jesus has said, I'm going to pause for a second. Jesus has said on numerous occasions that he's going to be lifted up, that he's talking about the way he's going to die, and he's speaking about a crucifixion. That's how Romans executed the worst offenders. They hung them on a cross for everyone to see what happens to you when you go against the Roman government. The Jewish nation, uh, if they were going to execute someone, stoned them to death. They literally buried them under a pile of rocks. So that's John's point there, that, that Jesus is going to be crucified. Back to the interaction. So Pilate goes back into his headquarters again, and he calls Jesus. So now it's just Pilate and Jesus over to the side having their own little conversation. And he says to Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom, excuse me, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray. Father, that is the, uh, the question that drives so much of the choices and the decisions that we make in life, in the country in which we live, in the culture, culture in which we have been raised. What is truth? What does that have to do with me? Am I not free to be my own master? Am I not free to make my own choices? Am I not free to throw off the shackles of any other authority and determine what is best for my own life? Anything that, that speaks against that seems to be intolerant, seems to be narrow-minded. It seems to be uh, a position that wants to oppress people. And yet, Lord Jesus, you speak so clearly about truth in such a radically different way that if we're not careful, we will completely miss it. Lord, you have called your children to go and to make other disciples. You've called us to grow disciples. We just saw a video of three people that are so excited about just telling children about the Lord Jesus. Yeah, Father, if we're going to do that, it, it, we must know your word. We must understand uh, the truth, but we also must understand the culture in which we live. And we must be very intentional and not be fearful of engaging in the conversation. And we thank you. I thank you, Lord, for this passage that shows Jesus just very directly dealing with one who was his enemy. So, Father, I pray that you would help us to have your insight into what it means to share the truth with others. Father, forgive me, forgive us for falling so short, for just kind of backing away from the conversation and being more concerned about being comfortable and being well-liked than, than telling people the word of life. Lord Jesus, forgive me for my sin. Don't let me stand in the way of what you want us to know and to learn this morning. We pray that you would come, your power and your spirit, and that you would be our teacher. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, before we jump into the text itself, let me just give you three quick insights that 
uh, are not based upon this particular passage, but I think are important if we're going to really wrestle with the idea of how can we effectively be students of our culture, be uh, engaged in this kind of conversation in a way that can make a difference in people's lives. The first one is though a lot of modern scholars would like to take credit for the notion that truth is relative. This is actually a very ancient conversation. We not only see it in this conversation between Pilate and Jesus, where, where Pilate's final response is, you know, what is truth? It's a very sarcastic comment. But there was a whole line of thinking that actually came out of Greek philosophy uh, as a reaction to Plato, who said, you can discover truth. If you can train your mind enough, if you can, if you can get it to work the way it's supposed to, you will discover truth. There was an entire academy set up in Athens, Greece, three or 400 years before Jesus was even born that was called the Academy of the Critics. You can type that into your Google search engine. You can read all about the dozens and dozens of Greek scholars who said, no, there is no absolute truth. I assume I'm not doing something wrong. Am I okay? All right. Um, Ouch. Do you want me to pause for a second or keep on going? Hang on. I don't want to deafen anyone. You can talk amongst yourselves. <laughs> well, pause. Keep going. All right, I'll keep. I'll keep after it. So, not only in ancient Greece, but but down through the years, you go to the Enlightenment. You can look at the 17th century, the 18th century, the 19th century. You've, you've maybe studied names like David Hume or Jean-Paul Sartre, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, Bertrand Russell, B.F. Skinner, down to today, and Carl Sagan, who just died a few years ago. This conversation of Truth being relative has been going on for a long, long time. So we ought not be scared off if someone were to say, well, now this is really a a new thought and maybe you've never considered this before. This is a very, very old thought. Secondly, uh, let me just remind us that man is spiritual, not just intellectual. There's a desire in, in in the deepest recesses of our heart to have an answer to this question, even if it's the wrong answer. Augustine said in the fourth century, there's a God-shaped hole in the heart of every man and woman walking around on the planet. There's a spiritual aspect to this that is not simply uh, just for an intellectual exercise. This uh, value system, this idea that I can define truth for myself is actually a spiritual notion as much as it is an intellectual one. And then thirdly, contrary, again, to a lot of modern assumptions, you know, people say, oh, the Bible's irrelevant. It's a bunch of fairy tales. It's kind of all, you know, thrown in there. There are all kinds of mistakes and and there's nothing practical about it. It doesn't really speak to the, you know, the situations and the circumstances of our day. That simply is spoken by someone who hasn't read the Bible carefully. Again, if you go back and you do a study of the word truth, you, will, you could spend weeks, months studying what Scripture has to say about truth. And so there is a, a foundation from which we can engage in this conversation. But how do we do that? How do we engage intentionally and purposely with a generation of people that just pretty much out of hand reject the notion of truth? And that's where I believe John 18 is of great insight to us. We see Jesus' conversation with Pilate. Three observations about this text. The first is this. Jesus is aware of his context. He's aware of his surroundings. And if you're going to engage people in this type of conversation, you need to be engaged in context. You need to understand your neighbors, your family members, your friend. What is, what is their educational background? What is their experience with church, inside church or outside of church? What is the, the, the manner in which they're living their lives? What clues can you see that would help you understand the context 
for their particular way of thinking. So here's Jesus standing with Pilate. They're off to the side by themselves. And Pilate comes back and he calls Jesus over and he says, are you king of the Jews? Now that's a yes or no question. That's not looking for any explanation. He's come in and somebody has said to him, these guys are upset because uh, this Jesus is an insurrectionist and he's claiming to be the king of the Jews. So Pilate says, let's get to the bottom. Are you the king of the Jews? Notice Jesus' answer. Answers a question with a question. Pilate, do you say this of your own accord? Or did someone else tell you to say that? Did someone else tell you this about me? I've had a lot of experience the last three weeks talking in terms that I don't know. When I, when I talk about lease terms and I talk about uh, property extensions, and I, I'm just kind of parroting words that, that people have spoken to me and trying to kind of get my mind around them. And Jesus is looking into Herod's heart. And he's saying to Herod, Let, let's get the context straight. Are you asking because you really want to know about me? Or is there some other motivation? Jesus' answer with a question shows his understanding of Pilate's circumstances. He also shows an understanding of the motivation of Pilate as a tough and ruthless politician. There is not a lot historically written about Pontius Pilate, the man that the scripture calls Pontius Pilate. There is historical evidence that he existed in 1961. There was a nameplate of his discovered uh, in Israel. It's clear that he was an actual governor at this time in this place. But there's very little outside of Scripture. But what there is out of Scripture, I think, speaks to the nature of Pilate's personality. Philo, who was a Jewish theologian, if you, or not theologian, historian, you, you can't go in the Bible and find a book of Philo. It's not there. But he spoke and wrote historically from the context of Israel during these days. And here's what he said about Pilate. Pilate had vindictiveness and a furious temper. It was naturally inflexible, a blend of self-will and relentlessness. Again, a kind of a master politician. Don't forget to vote on Tuesday, by the way. He writes that Pilate feared a delegation that the Jews might send to Tiberius protesting against his rule because if they actually sent an embassy, they would also expose the rest of his conduct as governor. By stating in full the briberies, the insults, the robberies, the outrages, the wanton injuries, the execution without trial, constantly repeated, the ceaseless and supremely grievous cruelty. Jesus knew that Pilate, in asking the question, was asking something beyond just a yes-no answer. He understood the context. And Jesus is saying, Pilate, do you really want to know? Are you looking for answers? Or are you looking for the easy way out? What are your priorities, Pilate? And I think this is a wonderful lesson for you and for me. Are we students of modern thinking? Are we aware of the culture around us, the context and the shifting values and beliefs in our day and age? Scripture actually speaks to this trend. If you go to 2 Timothy, where Paul is writing to a young apprentice pastor of his, a guy that he's been mentoring, he says this, there's a time that's coming when people will not endure sound teaching. Having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Paul, following the example of Jesus, says it's very clear that, that people are going to see truth as something they can make up as they go along. But as for you, if you are my disciple, be clear-headed. 
Be thoughtful and be prepared to share the truth. I believe that if we're going to effectively preach the Lord Jesus in our day and age, whether it's as we're having a cup of coffee with a friend or from a pulpit area on a Sunday morning, we must understand the context of our culture as much as we understand the scriptures themselves. If you sit down with any number of high school students, if you went up to Kirkwood High School this week and you just randomly selected a dozen students and you sat down there and you asked them to tell you the truth about sexuality, just pick that topic for the sake of conversation. We want you to tell us exactly what you believe about human sexuality. What are the boundaries? What are the rights? What are the wrongs? And so on and so forth. What you would hear is uh, probably at least 10 students who would say, your sexuality is whatever you would like it to be. Now, you've got to be smart about it and you gotta, you know, be careful and that sort of thing. But my sexuality is up to me. And maybe my parents have given me some direction. Maybe they haven't. But that's my truth. What I do with my sexuality is completely my decision. Friends, if we don't understand that way of thinking, if we don't set our minds to consider how to talk to a young person about that particular topic, and we just go in and, and kind, of, you know, kind of squash the conversation, say, well, let me tell you what's right and wrong about sexuality, we are going to be irrelevant. We are not going to honor the Lord Jesus, and we're not going to point anyone to him. We're going to miss the opportunity if we are not aware of the context. I believe that more of us as disciples of Jesus, as we look at our context, and perhaps we get a bit overwhelmed, and perhaps we get a, a little bit nervous about the, the, maybe the angst behind the statement, there is no truth, that we use that as an excuse to, to judge others instead of having to create a passion within our heart for them. And we dis- disengage with our culture instead of boldly stepping into the conversation and asking God to work in our hearts and our lives to be good witnesses for him. Where was Jesus when this conversation was taking place? He was on trial for his life. He could have said, no, Pilate, you've misunderstood. I, I've never, you can't find one person that's ever heard me utter the words, king of the Jews. And he could have looked out for his own neck. And yet, Jesus, in the moment of confrontation with a man who would ultimately, maybe, maybe in his mind passively, but would ultimately be an enemy of Jesus, speaks the truth into the context of Pilate's life. My second observation in this text is not only is Jesus aware of the context, but he expands the conversation from its narrow view. Look at verses 35 and 36. So Jesus says, did somebody tell you to ask me that, or you know, did you come up with it on your own? And Pilate, is, he's just a bit indignant. Am I a Jew? Your own nation of chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? Pilate tries to redirect it back to his, uh, what he wants to accomplish. And Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Whether Pilate was unable or unwilling to see beyond his own personal reality, Jesus challenges his narrow viewpoint. Jesus ignores Pilate's question, what have you done? And he introduces Pilate to the uh, to the notion and to the truth of the kingdom of God. Notice that Jesus now implicitly answers the question. Pilate has started off by saying, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus doesn't come out directly and answer that. Now Pilate says, what have you done? And Jesus begins to talk in kingdom language. He begins to expand the conversation. He begins to answer Pilate's question, yes, I am a king. The governor does not recognize Jesus 
And therefore, he misses the ramification of his own actions. What is going to occur in the next hour or so is going to set on course God's plan of salvation, but also one of the most uh, legal abuses in the history of mankind. And yet Pilate wants to keep it narrowly focused so he can save his own skin. He wants to figure out a way that he can use this against the Jews. If you go back and you read the context and Pilate says to them, why don't you just take him out and kill him? Pilate is actually mocking the Jewish leaders in that statement. Because if they take somebody out and kill him, Pilate will have them arrested. Because the Roman law was very clear. Only Romans control executions. Pilate hates the Jewish leaders. He's always been at odds with them. And he's looking to keep this conversation to how can he use Jesus for his own earthly purposes? How can he define the truth of the situation? And Jesus will have none of it. And in our modern culture, and today where the term truth is relative almost goes in one ear and out the other needs to be reconsidered by the church of Jesus Christ before we enter into and engage in the conversation because it needs to be expanded. Because if, if truth is relative, that means that man, not a man, but mankind, men or women, that somebody is the final arbiter of what is truth. And in a, in a smaller sense of the word, that might not matter that much to you and to me. If you define your truth by wanting to go watch a football game this afternoon, and I define my truth by wanting to take a walk outside, who could possibly be hurt? But what if man is ultimately the answer? We're not governed by laws. We're not governed by God. We're governed by individuals. Then the person in charge decides what's true. And what happens when the person in charge decides that there is no God? And what happens when the person in charge decides that man's worth is of little or no value because it is inconvenient for them to be part of the culture? You see, friends, there are radical ramifications if only my truth matters because eventually one of us is going to be in charge. And when that day comes, when that happens, it is my truth or your truth that is forced upon everyone else. Francis Schaeffer, who was one of the greatest minds the Christian community has ever known, lived in the 20th century, and he spoke prophetically about this in the 60s and in the 70s. And I'm going to read for you a, a quote, two paragraphs out of uh, uh, observation of Schaefer's words, some of their, his own words, and some of them are someone reflecting on them. And I want you to listen carefully because Schaefer addresses this notion of if we're just going to make it up as we go along, who has the final word on what's made up? Directly quoting Schaefer, the humanist push for freedom, but having no Christian conscience to contain it, that freedom leads to chaos or to slavery under the state or under an elite. Humanism, with its lack of any final base for value or law, always leads to chaos. It then naturally leads to some form of authoritarianism to control that chaos. Having produced the sickness, humanism gives more of the same kind of medicine for the cure. With its mistaken concept of final reality, that being whatever I want it to be, it has no intrinsic reason to be interested in the individual, the human being. Writing about Schaefer, one of, uh, one of his observers said that uh, Schaefer saw this 1973 legalization of abortion as a byproduct of man playing God by legislating arbitrary laws and by the few forcing their will on the many. But according to Schaefer, this is just the beginning. 
For once human life has been devalued at one stage, the pre-birth stage, there is no human life that is safe. Abortion will lead to infanticide, the killing of babies already born, and euthanasia or so-called mercy killing. Christianity teaches that human life is sacred because man was created in God's image. But now that uh, um, modern man has rejected the Christian worldview, the death of God, so to speak, the death of man will follow. And man will be treated as non-man. Schaefer documents the erosion of respect for human life in the statements of Nobel Prize winners Watson and Crick. Two scientists, after winning the Nobel Peace Prize for cracking the genetic code, publicly recommended that we should terminate the lives of infants three days old and younger if they do not meet our expectations. Friends, unless we understand the conversation needs to be broadened, unless the church of Jesus Christ is stimulated into seeing the dangers that are in front of us and are upon us even at this moment, and if we are unwilling to challenge the assumptions and warn about the outcomes, if we decide to silently sit on the sidelines because it's the safest place to be, we will lose any influence we have for the kingdom of God. And we will become completely irrelevant. There's no greater moment in, in the history of humanity than today, and I don't say that lightly, than the moment for real truth is needed. And we must not Allow the conversation to be just about what I want. We must engage it to where it leads. And dare we think that people will not pay attention and people won't listen. I'll tell you an experience in my own life of a young man that I had a relationship with back in the, the 90s. And this, a lot of this was really coming to the forefront. And we would have debate after debate after debate. And I couldn't convince him of anything. I, I couldn't lead him into any other conclusion but that his truth was his truth and he was, he was going to be there. And, and he would get upset with me and he would get frustrated with me, but we'd hang in there and we would talk. And we would talk sometimes for hours and I'd drive him home after youth group and drop him off. And I got a, I got a Facebook note from him about six months ago. Now, if you ever Facebook me, know that it takes me about six months to actually look at Facebook. So if you send me something today, I'll get back to you next July. Um, I should be better about it. I'm just not. But I got a Facebook from him and I looked at the name and I went, oh, that's that kid who hated me. And I, and I popped it open and I read it and he said, hey, I just want to let you know that all those conversations we had and all those times you, know, you drove me home and all that, I was listening and I was watching. And I noticed that actually what you believed played itself out in your life. And God used that to keep me from getting too far off track. And uh, I don't say that and say, oh, way to go, Tom. If you take that away, that's, that's a, a horrendous application of that illustration. The point is, is that as we trust God for the results but are willing to enter into the conversation, God does amazing things because he is the truth. And no matter how loudly the other idea is shouted, it cannot silence the fact that Jesus has come as truth in the flesh and that he does have the kingdom. He is the one who will inherit the kingdom. I can say I live in the United States, but I can't say the United States belonged to me. I, I can't even say 631 Nurk Avenue belongs to me. It belongs to the bank as much as it belongs to me. Jordan and I thought about seceding from the union a few years ago, but we decided that you know we, we didn't have a whole lot of source for national income, so we set that aside. So I, I can't even say that little sliver of land belongs to me. It's mine. But Jesus says, this is my kingdom. And I want to expand the conversation, Pilate. Understand you're talking to the king of eternity. My third observation in this text is that Jesus gets 
to the heart of the matter. Look at verse 37. Pilate says, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Um, if you're looking for an underline in your Bible, those are mine. They, they're not in Scripture. I just wanted you to be able to see that easily. When Pilate says, oh, so you are a king, Jesus says, well, you've said that. We can hear that in a different way. Normally you hear it when somebody says, says wait, you said that, I didn't. Don't, don't put words in my mouth. That's kind of how it reads, but that's not what Jesus is saying. Have you ever uh, heard someone affirm your idea by saying, boy, you said it? That's exactly right. A lot of us after the Alabama game last night, boy, Alabama's number one. Boy, you said it, right? My son goes to Alabama. Sorry if there are any LSU grads in the crowd. Um, Jesus is affirming that Pilate's finally gotten it right. (laughs) Pilate, that's exactly right. You've said it. Yes, I am a king. But let me tell you about the truth of my kingdom. You see, Pilate, the truth is that I am God in the flesh that I have come to represent not a truth, not someone's opinion of truth. I've come to represent the truth. I am God standing before you. Pilate, the truth is, is that God has the final power. God has the ultimate authority over mankind. Believe what you want. Argue all day long, but at the end of the day, God sits on the throne of heaven. I have come into the world to bear witness to that truth. Pilate, the truth is is that because I'm standing before you, why? Because God uses this unlimited strength and his eternal rule to defeat sin and death and hell and ransom mankind. Pilate, you've got to open your eyes to what's going on around you. The truth is here in front of you, and and if you will listen, you will hear it in my words because the truth is, is that the king uses his might to grant mercy and pardon those who rebel against him. The truth is given by God, Pilate, not by you, not by Caesar, not by anyone else but him. However, it is not for the purpose of oppression. It is to give life to all who believe. I come to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Jesus standing off to the side with Pilate away from the crowds. The picture here that we have of a uh, 1890s, Uh, portrait painted by a Russian painter of of this conversation. Jesus says to Pilate, if you will listen, (laughs) you'll hear truth in my voice. And how does Pilate respond? Almost spits it out. What is truth? Pilate is not convinced. Pilate will not allow the heart of the matter to come to the surface and to deal with his own sin and his own brokenness. But here is Jesus, God in the flesh, not attacking Pilate. Not saying, Pilate, all you are is a lackey to these guys. You don't even realize what trouble you're going to get yourself into. Here's Jesus not trying to talk himself out of going to the cross. Here's Jesus face to face with a man who in just a few moments will take a bowl of water and wash his hands and say, I didn't have anything to do with this, but you take him away and you crucify him. Here's Jesus standing in front of the man who's going to have him beaten half to death before he ever gets to the cross and be spit on and mocked and abused in ways that we can't even possibly imagine. And he cares about the soul of Pilate. He cares enough to say, Pilate, in a gracious way, you're a fool. You don't think there's truth? 
Don't you understand what God has done, what he is doing, who he is, and how he has come to redeem mankind? Pilate, will you listen? Ultimately, Pilate doesn't. But the same question is before you and before me this morning, this nonsense that God has come to give us a set of rules and to oppress us, and then we need to throw everything off and we need to question authority because authority by nature is bad, but I can have authority that's good by being my own master. All I wanted was a glass of tea. <laughs> that's all I wanted. And I got a worldview. And I'm still going to buy their tea because it tastes really good. But Kirkwood and our surrounding area and the world (laughs) needs the truth. We cannot be shouted down, friends. This is not a time to be a timid disciple of Jesus. This is not a time for what I call Christian isolationism, where we just kind of pack up our toys and go home and we try to remain safe. This is a time to seize the bold opportunity before us because the world is asking and they're looking and they're desiring the answer for the question, what is truth? Will we share it with them? That's the question. Let's pray. Father, I've, I've, I've rambled on a long time this morning. It's been a long sermon and... Um, Thank you for people that would be willing to sit patiently and under your word. And Father, I, this is such an important topic. Uh, we seem to have lost this battle. We seem to have lost our gumption for this conversation. And, and that's a shame because the truth is, is right in front of all of us. Father, we don't need to apologize for it. We don't need to feel bad about it. We, we, we ought not ever be arrogant or rude or condescending. But Lord Jesus, you stood in front of a man who signed your death warrant and you shared the truth with him because God is a compassionate God and God does not lie. He can only speak the truth. And Lord Jesus, you've raised us up for this day, for this generation, for this moment and you have called us to speak the truth and to live the truth of your grace and your mercy in our day and age. Forgive us when we fall short and empower us to be bold in the truth that Jesus has come to redeem lost mankind. Pray in your name. Amen.